Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, I think it is uh, super fitting that Sylvia Borstein once uh, wrote a book called That's Funny, You Don't Look Like a Buddhist. That's because she is not uh, your stereotypical meditation master. She's a like five foot nothing, 83 year old Jewish grandmother. But do not be fooled. She is a, a compact missile of wisdom. Uh, she also has a, a hilarious, infectious laugh. Uh, she likes to teach in stories, and she has a ton of great stories, and you're about to hear a bunch of them. In this episode, we talk about practicing mindfulness in every part of your life and how practically you can do that. We talk about how meditation can help somebody uh, like her who self-describes as a, quote, inveterate fretter. And we take your voicemails together at the end. So short intro this week. Let's dive right in. Here's Sylvia Borstein. I'm just curious, how did you first – get involved in the meditation game? Um, I like to tell people I'm an accidental Buddhist. Um, it was the 1970s, and people were going to meditation retreats. It was in. You could go to a weekend. Every other weekend, someone else was giving an enlightenment weekend somewhere. And my husband, much more than I, was very gung-ho about going to them that uh, we would have a conversation where he would, in his way, which is more philosophical than mine, he'd say, I really want to understand life. And I would say, no, no, not me. I really just want to be able to stand it. <laughs> and I would, uh, in any event, he went off on a, a bunch of weekends and he'd come home and say, Sil, this is it. And I did lots of things and I got initiated into lots of things and nothing was bad for me. Meanwhile, I was a social worker. I had a full-time job. I had four children. I was busy in my life, and I wasn't looking for a spiritual practice. I had, you know, it just became the era of cartoons of people going up mountaintops uh, to ask gurus what's the meaning of life. And I was really too busy having a life. If someone had said, do you want to become enlightened, go on this retreat? or uh, They just said, it was just what everybody was doing. I didn't have a clear idea of what enlightenment meant or what it was that I wanted. But I went. He went on a two-week mindfulness retreat, and he said, still, this is really it, so you'd have to do this. So I went off, and I did that. And I actually, there's a great story about that. Um, I went on retreat for two weeks with very little information about what was going on there. I went up to a place in uh, Toledo, Washington, and uh, all of a sudden... All day long, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, which I know you know about. <laughs> I, I definitely do. <laughs> so imagine, I wasn't surprised who, who was about... was the teacher at this? Uh, Jack Cornfield and two other people no longer teaching or in the scene. Okay. Uh, but that was where I met Jack Cornfield, who is my lifelong now friend and colleague and... He's actually never been on the show. We, sh we should fix that. But should... for those who don't know, he is legendary meditation teacher. He's Legendary. A, and he's a great friend. He's a very good person. So we became friends. Although in that particular retreat, I remember when I went to see him for my periodic interviews, I'd say something like, uh, I have such a terrible headache. What, what my husband did not tell me about that retreat 
I didn't mind about the sitting and walking, sitting and walking, or not reading. I knew all about that. He didn't tell me no caffeine. <laughs> and I got there and no caffeine. And I had a tra- terrible caffeine withdrawal headache for the first several days. That's changed because there's caffeine now at the retreat centers that Jack has co-founded. No, I'm the co-founder of that very the, retreat center. <laughs> there's, there's caffeinated tea. Caffeinated tea. But what there is not is coffee. Uh, well, there even is coffee there now, Dan, because people bring it in their own private uh, stash and bring the coffee, bottle of coffee powder to them. I am lobbying always for the change of that. I think it's a relic. Uh, and the tea has caffeine, so it's silly. I should just quickly say the re- retreat center that you co-founded with Jack is called Spirit Rock. Rock Meditation Center. It's in Woodacre, California. And the... Uh, and. You can Google it at uh, spiritrockmeditationcenter.org. I did my first retreat there with Joseph Goldstein. I know. I remember reading in your book. You are very funny. (laughs) (laughs) I made fun of you guys a lot. You did. And I knew immediately you didn't even have to say it was Kamala. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to tell you, I do not talk. Well, you've just heard me. I didn't sound anxious or... Overly mellifluous, did I? Well, uh, we should say for the listeners who might not know this, that before we started the podcast, you guided me in meditation, and we're going to post that somewhere. And no, you speak, you really do just speak like a normal person. Like a regular person. That's because one of my hallmarks is I'm a perfectly normal person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an old grandmother with with four children and seven grandchildren. And one great-grandchild, so I'm a regular person. You're not that old. I'm 83. Okay, 83 is a good good number. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would not have guessed that. Oh, good. I'll tell you another piece of news. Ego does not go away. (laughs) I'm thrilled. (laughs) I must say I took some pains when I dressed myself. (laughs) Well, it's more your face. You don't look – I mean, I don't know what an average 83-year-old should look like, but I didn't – I didn't say, oh, this person's in her 80s. I am in my 80s. Well, you wear it well. Thank you very much. And we are now lifelong friends. At least you are. (laughs) (laughs) I should just say Kamala, the Kamala Masters, who was one of the teachers on that retreat. And I I didn't name her, but I did kind of make fun of her a little bit. There was another teacher I did name who I made fun of a lot named Spring Washam, who has gone on to become a teacher of mine and a, a really good friend who's been on this show twice now, uh, who I have an, an enormous and abiding respect for. No, that's, that, of course, and I have a respect for them as well. Everybody has a style. I have a style. If we talk long enough, I'll probably laugh a lot and giggle because I have a giggle. that uh, And that people tell me, it's not what you say, it's that you giggle. So. <laughs> it's there it this is. One. There it was. <laughs> it's kind of like a cackle, and I inherited it from my mother and Two of my four children have it, and one of my grandchildren. It's it's a it's a gene anyway. So uh, back to the retreat center in Washington. This is the magic story. I stayed there for ten days or two weeks, and uh, I got my knees stopped hurting. I could sit on the floor. I could walk. I, I could sit. I could walk. The headache went away. But I would have said at the end of the two weeks that nothing particularly changed, um, I would say my senses were cleansed, that uh, I could smell the smell 
of the oatmeal way down the hall when I was still down at the other end of the hallway that led to the dining room. So you think, well, what's the big deal about smelling oatmeal? It's not that big of a deal. Or I could tell whether the lunch was going to be a Thai lunch or a Mexican lunch by the smell that came down the hall. That's the whole thing. I could also see that the leaves outside were greener and the edges of the leaves. It was like being a little bit stoned, really, that all the senses are heightened. But I would say not much happened. And then on the last evening of the retreat, uh, when, as you know from your retreat experience, the decision to have silence, the, the pact that we all take to keep silence is ended so that people can socialize a little and meet each other and talk to each other. And I used that talking time to call my husband, who was back in, Calif- in California. And uh, I remember standing in at that time, it's 1977, I was standing in a phone booth in the middle of a hallway where people walked up and down. And I phoned and we said a few things about what plane I was coming on that he was going to meet. And I said, how's my dad? Because my father had a few years previous to that moved to California, lived down the street from us. I saw him all the time. He is an only child, was an only child, and I'm an only child. And we were very close, very close to my children. He and I used to run 10K races together. He was in his 60s. I was in my 40s. He was quite well. And he had told me as I was leaving that he felt peaked. He was going to go to the doctor. And uh, Seymour said, well, I have bad news for you. Your father has multiple myeloma. And in those days, not now, but in those days, that was really a fatal illness always. And um, and he said, so the doctors have said that he has about two years. With the treatment, he has about two years. And I remember that moment standing in that phone booth. And I've, I, I'm at some pains always to explain to people that I felt really terrible about it. I loved my father very much. We were very dear to each other. And it was terrible news. I didn't hear it as anything but terrible news. And I also knew in that moment that I didn't fall through the floor. You know, I've had experiences where people have called and said there's been a plane crash or this or that. People have died. I've always had the feeling that the floor falls out from under you or you can't hear it or you become, you, you can't make out the words because the body just blocks it out. And I realized that I heard it. I did not feel, I felt very sad without feeling hysterical. I didn't feel overwhelmed. I said, okay, I'll be home tomorrow, and he and I will do it together. And I remember thinking afterwards, wow. Uh, I was walking down the hallway going back to my room, and I saw people sitting in the dining room all chatting away and eating popcorn, which is often the great treat that is served at the end of retreat. I thought to myself, how can I go in and have hot popcorn? I just heard that my father's dying. Then I thought, well, I'm also a little hungry. <laughs> and so I went in, and I sat. I didn't talk to people. I didn't feel in a talking mood. But I ate the popcorn. And I thought, well, my, my father's dying. And I went back, and I, I did go through my father's dying with him over the years. It took, I'm happy to say, more than two years and. They had enough medicines to keep him going fairly well. But when when I looked back, people said, did you have any great insight on your first retreat? 
And at the time, I just noticed it. I didn't have a big insight. But later on, I would have said that was my first experience of having a mind that met experience in a different way. Hmm. And, uh, oh, I was going to tell you a whole different story. (laughs) Before we started the interview and I was sitting here alone for a few minutes, I thought I should tell a story about the woman on the beach in Guaymas. That's when I knew that I could that I could have my mind in a different way, but this other one came up instead. So. Oh, now I want to hear the woman on the beach. <laughs> People love the woman on the beach. So at some time around that time, must have been after my I don't know when it was apropos of my father, but uh, Seymour and I went down to Guaymas uh, to a beach resort. And Where's Guaymas? Guaymas is in Mexico. Okay, it's on the west coast of the mainland of Mexico. Near Acapulco? Above Acapulco, north of Acapulco. Um, and we went there in the summer because the the water in the, the ocean right there in the summer is like a bathtub. It really is. And it's lovely to go in and, because you, it, it, it's just lovely to go in. So we went down there and we took piles of books that both of us were at the time reading and interested in. And we feed, we'll stay in the air-conditioned hotel and we'll snorkel in the ocean outside, which is what we did. The other thing that we did is we took little walks along the shore and uh, found right next to the hotel there was a caravan park where people had driven caravans down to this Mexican beach and parked there. And we were in the middle of the summer. So it's got all these caravans and there was a woman there, a young woman, uh, with two children. And when I tell people now this story, I see as I tell it, their eyes get wider and wider, particularly older women, women who are mothers themselves or grandmothers better. Say so there was a woman on the beach in a caravan. Uh, she had two children with her. One of them was four, and the other one was a baby. And he was uh, crawling but not yet walking, which puts him under a year. And we began to visit with her, and she said... Yes, yes, she comes down for the whole summer. She lives in L.A., but she likes to be out of L.A. in the summer. She comes down. Her husband drives her down with this caravan, and then he comes down for further visits. He comes every weekend, she said, in his private plane. He flies, he's got a small airport, and he gives flying lessons, and he flies down every weekend, and she's there alone in this caravan park. So as people are listening, I can see already people are looking a little alarmed, a woman alone on a beach in Mexico who doesn't speak Spanish, it turns out, who's there by herself. Who, that's already four issues to be nervous about if you're a nervous person. And her husband is flying back and forth on a small plane by himself every weekend. That's two more issues every weekend. <laughs> and if you're a person like me who's an a inveterate uh, fretter, uh, <laughs> don't know her or her children, but there are so many things to worry about. And I began to like, what will she do if they get sick? Where's the nearest pediatrician? Does she have a refrigerator in there? How is she keeping food refrigerated? There's a thousand things to worry about. (laughs) And so I tell the story up to that. And then I say to the people in the room, who here so far is worried? (laughs) Everybody puts their hands up. So everything's going fine. We say hello to the woman every day. One night, it's the middle of the summer. It doesn't rain in the Sonora Desert in the summer. But it did then. They have one of those flash floods. I get up from sleep in thunder and lightning. I look across the sky. 
It's really lit up from from one end to the other with lightning and winds howling around the the building and rain lashing down. And I'm worried about the woman in the caravan. And the following morning we get up and it's all sunny and we go down, we walk right away over to the caravan park. And there she is, caravan park is a mess. Outdoor furniture strewn all around, everything's thrown around. And she's really tidying up outside her little place. And uh, she looks fine. And say, how are you fine? How was the storm? She said, oh, it was it was amazing. She said, she said it was exciting. She said, uh, I I woke, uh, the baby slept right through it. She said, and I woke John up, the four year old. I woke John up because I didn't want him to miss it. I thought to myself, I need another mind. <laughs> I need her mind. <laughs> <laughs> I need a mind that doesn't make up worries about something that didn't even happen yet, and that. Uh, uh, and that meets scary things like their adventure. Wake up, John! He shouldn't miss it. Ah. And I thought, I, if I if if there was such a thing as a mindectomy, I would have, <laughs> <laughs> or a mind transplant, I would have had it. But there isn't. But I thought I want that mind. So then people right away thinking, so did you get that mind? You're doing this now for forty years. Did you get that mind? No. I didn't get that mind. But what I got is a mind that quite clearly recognizes that the habit of my mind is to create fret. When in doubt, create fret. Anything is not just exactly as I've always known it. It's, uh uh-oh, what could be? I tell people when I'm in the airport and they say, "Um, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? And it's going to be definitely followed up I please keep your luggage next to you because that's what they always say. Says, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? I think, ah, oh, the plane I'm waiting for has just crashed. It's going to be a bad news. In that nanosecond in between. But what I've gotten really clear about is that that's the voice, that's the neurology I've been born with. It frets when in doubt. So what I have now is the thought, uh-oh, that I, but I have sufficiently closely behind it the thought, Sylvia, you're doing your story again. It's not true. It's not going to happen. And enough so that it subverts most of the time the adrenaline rush so that I have the the same thoughts, but they don't frighten me, and I don't believe them, which is a huge, which is a huge change. So I think that's one of my senses of how I have changed. I I would agree with you. That sounds huge. That's a huge. Thing. I'd like a mindectomy with you. <laughs> you you're very dear. You want the giggle? <laughs> no, it's not good for. <laughs> it's not good for a radio person. You have to keep yourself. <laughs> I can uh, no no. This is this is a podcast. We can be as giggly as we want. It's yeah totally no no. I, no <laughs> but if it, in your other life is a non podcast. Oh, oh yes, as a TV newsman, yeah. uh, I giggle once in a while, but I try to keep it in check. <laughs> Uh, no, I easily giggle. I am. I, I am. I think of my my general uh, demeanor as or my mood as being. I'm an easily cheered melancholic. I I often think of, uh oh, what could happen bad. I'm very moved easily, more than when I started, by the pain of the world, by the pain that everybody shares just by being in a life. And that didn't go away. 
I actually think that's one of the things that is, uh, as, as far as I, as far as I think, is the desired um, purpose of mindfulness practice. <clears throat> but I think a lot of people would hear that part. There's a lot to pick apart there because being an inveterate fretter, where I can see that would be closely tied to having a lot of empathy and compassion is a different thing. So it sounds like the, these were comorbid uh, <laughs> attributes for you. And it sounds like the fretting hasn't gone away, but it's been followed up by like the, I'm picturing the person who runs behind an elephant and sweeps away the poop. Um, and, and, and there's a different voice that comes in and says, Sylvia, that's just a story. But then there's the other thing, which is feeling deeply for yeah. other people and it sounds like that actually not only has not gotten away, but has gotten even more deep. I think that's more deep. Uh, here's a, here's another story about. Um, Can I ask you a quick question, though? Yeah. Because I want to hear the story. Yeah. I, I I promise I want to hear the story. But I could imagine some people hearing this kind of walking vulnerability, where you feel more deeply for people around you, which is a. I could hear people saying, well, that sounds painful. Yeah. I could hear them saying that sounds painful and even more vulnerable than I would like to be. This is a very important question, so I'll tell you another story instead. You can remind <laughs> me of that other one. Here's the story in a very short. I overheard teachers talking one day as a, when I was on a retreat, having a teacher meeting in the next room, just talking to each other. And I heard the teacher that I very most admire, Joseph Goldstein, in it was res- my teacher. Yes, responding to the question, why do you pra- continue to practice? And he said, I want to have a deeper understanding of suffering. And I, from from 40 years ago, mind, in, in the next room, I thought, hey, I came on this retreat to stop suffering mm. so much, so I don't want a deeper. Don't tell me deeper view of suffering. But I have, I think, come to value seeing clearly, not that life, every minute of life is suffering, but that embedded in the fabric of life is the experience of, of pain and disappointment, and that people suffer from that to varying degrees, which is really what the, the Buddha is teaching. It's that we, we use pain and suffering as, as uh, uh, interchangeable words, but the Buddhist definition of pain is it's a thing that happens to people. Life comes with pain and with disappointment. And suffering is what happens when we don't handle the pain or the disappointment. Suffering is the add-on when we can't say, okay, this is happening. What should I do now? I think that's the crucial, crucial piece of Dharma learning, that uh, it's not just to be in the moment. That's the half of the the definition. I hear people say sometimes, oh, I know about mindfulness. It's to be here now. That's the beginning of it, to know what's happening and what's arising in you in response to it in order to, and that seems to me the, the crucial piece, in order to see clearly what mo- what action on my part will create suffering or alleviate suffering and take that path because that's going to make me feel happier. That's, I think, the crucial insight of it. Be here now is not enough. So, But I, did I not answer your question about people are going to think that this is about uh, becoming more melancholy. I, I don't think so. It's about becoming more compassionate. And it has a certain edge on it. I, I, I would agree with you on that. Uh, 
I'm an easily cheered melancholic. But um, maybe I think that this is this is the difference that when I was really overburdened by being a fretter, I didn't think of other people's troubles mm. because when I'm over, when anybody's overwhelmed with their own stuff, they don't think about the whole world at all. That you need to be actually somewhat having enough poise of mind. I love that word. I just started this year to use the word poise of mind. That instead of the mind leaping up and doing the impulsive thing, it's poised to do something, but it has that little break of mindfulness in there. Says, okay, what what what, what should I do now that's going to make these things better? That um, whatever I thought about what I was going to learn and practice it, or whatever I intuited from my earliest experiences, that somehow my mind would get different. Uh, I I'm, I often tell that um, at some point I asked my husband, I said, well, you know, I've been doing this for about 35, 40 years. <laughs> what do you think has changed? And I'm very curious to hear what No, he been. asked me, what do you think has changed? So you've been doing all this stuff for 25, 30, 40 years now. What's changed? I think he probably ran out of conversation because, I mean, I don't know. He asked it, and I said I became kind. And he said you were always kind. And I said I became kinder. And that's really true. And I became kinder not because I became more convinced that kindness is a noble thing to be, but I became less self-preoccupied and more available to notice who around me was suffering and that life is really fraught with possibilities for suddenly being either bereaved in your body of its former health or bereaved in your mind of something you loved. And that everybody walks around that vulnerable all the time. And you never know what's going to happen. So, uh, some thoughts are coming through my mind, and I want to just say them, and you can tell me if I'm on point. Mm-hmm. There's often confusion about the difference between empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. So when people hear you say, as you said before, that you feel more deeply the pain of the world, and I said, well, I would imagine some people would say that and would hear that and say, well, that, that sounds awful. <laughs> what that? But there's a difference between simply feeling the pain, empathy, yeah. mm-hmm. and compassion, which is an empowering, empowering mm-hmm. ennobled state where you feel the pain plus are poised to act. That is a key, it, it seems to me, a key difference. It is. And, and first, of all, first of all, in those situations that are actually face-to-face where you can act to take care of people. You know, one of the things that's become, uh, alas, but normally part of my life now, is my friends are dying mm. uh, or they're sick uh, and limited. And one of the things that I'm discovering and feeling glad about is that I can visit them without being afraid. Uh, they are, you know, one step ahead of me in in dying. But so sometimes people don't like to go be with sick people and they don't know what to say with sick people. But I, I am actually happy about being comfortable being with my friends or even people that I am meeting who are not my friends, people I, I meet on retreat who have some really difficult thing. And I know at the same time I can feel really... Um, a kind of love for them without needing to fix them. You know, I can't fix them. 
but I can really um, that's what I think of really as empathy it, it just uh, you know what it's probably connected to Dan it helps me these days not be mad at people uh, it's, it maybe takes it into another domain but it was too big of a leap not to have the in-between places uh, I'll tell you a story which will lead back into where I where my mind leaped over. Great. Um, some point in my career of teaching, I said uh, that mindfulness was one of the, the my friends who were mindfulness teachers, for instance, or practitioners. Uh, they didn't become able to do superhuman things like walk on water or tell the future or whatever. But they managed, I said, I am managing my life more gracefully than I did. And uh, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, and my friends are managing gracefully. And when we pass each other in the supermarket and we say to each other, how are you? They say, fine, thanks. The other person says, fine, thanks. To interpret that, not as everything is wonderful, fantastic, but it means I'm managing. I'm, I am coping with my life with its difficulties and its not difficulties I'm managing. And then I taught that. I, I, I said that in class one day. Maybe we should have a, uh, like a secret class uh, uh, identity. So when you meet someone and you say, I'm fine, and they fi- say, fine, it's like a secret handshake from Phi Beta Kappa or something. They, you know that you met them in my class or something. I met them or they know me. And somebody else whose name was Gwen, I remember because it's Gwen's line. Gwen said, I never say I'm fine. She said, I always say I couldn't be better. And then if you think about it for a minute, nobody could. Nobody could. The deepest understanding that I have is that everybody is manifesting in each moment as a result of everything that ever happened to them or their parents, or in their life, or how they got there, or in their genetics. And it allows me to not be angry in the way that I used to feel angry at particular people. And it does not take away from me my political views, or my determination to be a social activist, or my uh, ability to speak out about the values that I hold dear. But I don't have to have an embittered mind. That has been for me in the last several years the most freeing thing. If I look at a person or I hear a person saying something that I think, this is terrible, you know, this is awful, I can think to myself, instead of thinking mm, things about them, I can think they couldn't be other. You know? that, and from that I feel a certain amount of compassion because I figure if that's how they live, if that's their mind, they've got to be really uncomfortable. Does that tie up what I said? Yes. All right. So to go from there to what will sound perfectly silly, if I write another book, which I really am thinking about doing, and I just am starting to have titles in my mind, one of the titles I'm thinking is, I want my mind to be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Because I do. And I think it could be. And I think that's the message of practice. You could meet life as a friend. But, but, but. I have my views. I have views. But if I, if I can't meet my life as a friend, then my mind will be continually riled up. Say more about 
Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and how that could be ported over into one's <laughs> mind. Well, the main things about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which you... Uh, I grew up with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, but everybody feels comfortable. Well, here's even a, a better way to start that sentence. Everybody who saw the film that was around last year, which you may or may not I have seen. I did see it. I thought it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And everyone that I met that saw it said, that was beautiful. Grown people. So it wasn't... What they what you come out from feeling at the end of that time is good. That there's such goodness in the world. Mr. Rogers lets everybody into his neighborhood. He is kind to everybody in his neighborhood. He's not ruffled by anybody in his neighborhood. When uh, we make it very formal, when we make it loving kindness practice, made this one, made that one, made the other one. But really, and loving kindness seems to be like a mysterious thing. But welcome in my neighborhood, or I'm not having a problem with you because of the stories and the opinions that I heard about you, uh, or the opinions I made up based on the stories I heard about you. I can think to myself, poor person, poor man, poor woman, poor whatever, and I don't have to be angry at them. And the only people who suffer if I get angry at them is me. <laughs> I think about... Um, Alan Gopnik used this word in a book years ago. The word was bitterosity. <laughs> he said uh, his daughter in some conversation said about her imaginary playmate that he died and uh, her doting parents who were interested in her imaginary companions said, what did he die of? And the child responded, he died of bitterosity. <laughs> so I don't want to die of bitterosity <laughs> and I want to live without it. That, 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 and it certainly does not mean I am not dressed in my proper hat and going to the rallies and carrying the, the placards and speaking out. And Mr. Rogers spoke up. Yeah, he did. There's that wonderful scene in the movie where he gives his testimony for, um, I guess it was for uh, public radio. Funding for public the television, great, I believe. Yeah, public television. And he got it. Yes. Yeah. But he also spoke out about, um, you know, after 9-11, he, he spoke out about violence and he spoke out about treating people, uh, he, about being inclusive. Yeah. And he was kind of subtly and subversively sending lots of message about messages about inclusion on his show at a time when yeah. the, the society was less inclusive than it is now. Although, the, of course, we have work to do. The, 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 the scene in which... He invites the mailman to take off his shoes and sit with him, sit with his feet in that kiddie pool. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, that's. uh, So I want a mind like his, a mind that's spacious and and expecting the good and um, inclusive and not so easily frightened. Let me just go back to the difference that I. Was my, I was stating my understanding of the difference between empathy and compassion, and you were saying you indicated that you agreed with what I was saying, and but then you followed up by saying, if I if I recall, when I can help, you know, I, the, empathy is just feeling other people's pain, compassion is feeling other people's pain, pain plus being poised to help, but you can't always help. You can't always help. So what do you do in those situations when you turn on the news and see some? Genocide somewhere, or I don't know. There, there are or you're sitting with somebody you can't help them, et cetera, et cetera. No, this is a perfect question, Dan. Thank you very much, because I think that what we don't talk about 
enough in teaching mindfulness as a meditation and as a skill to people is mindful of, in addition to what is the angst of the moment or the pain of the moment, to make the scene bigger. You know, when the camera goes back, this backs up like the end of a Fellini movie, so you not only see this, but the whole thing that you get, that when my mind backs up and goes outside and sees, ah, the moon is full. Tonight is the absolute full moon. Imagine, I can, it's been predictably full at this time. It's the exact right day for it to be full. Or uh, I call a friend and I talk to a friend and I establish some loving connection. Or I turn on the Mozart horn concerto in my car as I drive home that there is beauty in this world and there is the awesomeness of the cosmos and there is the uh, the always sucker of, of uh, sustenance giving of connecting with a friend with love that I look for something to pick up my mind. I, at one point I was teaching so much about that that you have to do that because how can you really look with clear eyes at the suffering in the world and understand it and respond to it with compassion. First of all, I thought, this is my current phrase, I want to replace contention in my mind with <clears throat> compassion. How can we respond with compassion, not contention? So I say to people, I think you have to make a bigger frame. This is part of, this is what's going on in my life right now. I used to use the uh, analogy of the television sets that I, you know, I first saw in sports bars where you'd see here's the big television where it's showing the, the Army-Navy game because you're interested in the channel is showing that. But then with a flick of this, uh, of the remote, the bartender in the sports bars can put over the uh, USC uh, Notre Dame game over on a small little inset. Picture, picture. Picture, picture, yes. well, picture within the picture. I think I'm always looking at a picture within a picture. I'm looking at Sylvia Face's life over here, and then I'm looking at life is happening. So it's not a form of denial to say, no. okay, I've just seen this horrible images of suffering. Let me call a friend and talk about something else? No, no, no. I call a friend not to talk about something else, but if I feel overwhelmed, I call a friend. Say, what are you doing? I don't know. Or I listen to the Mozart Horkin channel, or I look at, uh, uh, I think about the fact that my life also has this and that and the other. It's contextualizing that moment's response. <laughs> one of my daughters, <laughs> this is the most weird memory, was at a wedding one time, and one of my daughters, on the uh, adult daughters, way on the other side of the room, came around uh, to talk to me, and she said, Mom, what's the matter with you? Your face looks so um, unhappy. I said, well, can you imagine cousin so-and-so just came by and she said da 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 to me, and it just got me so much. My mind got caught in it. This is the meditation teacher of somewhat renown, <laughs> <laughs> whose daughter has come around the room. Said, "Mom, what happened to you?" So I said, "Cousin so and so said da 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 da." And my daughter said, "Mom, it's fifteen seconds out of a life. Could you let it go?" <laughs> so it's it's just that when something grabs your mind, all of a sudden. You have to remember to do something else with it and either think there's a marvelous somebody just got married or somebody just had a bar mitzvah or whatever event I was at. There's a, there's, a, there's a bigger around it. I hope I can do that when I'm dying 
that you know there's a bigger around that I'm dying and that I, people are after me and people care about me. Uh, this is just an event that's happening in the in the big event of the cosmos is unfolding. There's a bigger story than my story. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. You said before that you can show up for your friends who are sick and dying and not be afraid. Are you afraid yourself of dying? I'm not. I think. I don't know. I I have to be up there to to find out. But I don't think so. I don't think so because um, I don't think so. I I cannot imagine a a life more um, blessed than mine. I mean, I I have a big family and lots of things have happened to everybody in them. But lots of things happen to everybody. And here we are. And I, I... have the phenomenal good luck of uh, being 83 years old and able to think and talk and teach and move around on my own and remember, which is a big deal by the time you're 83. So I feel very blessed in my life. And I know enough about modern medicine to, to think that I probably won't be uncomfortable because there are ways. I've been with enough of my friends to know that they don't, need to be uncomfortable and uh, I hope I'm not frightened at the end of my life you know there's um, 
there's a uh, a Zen story. I'll tell you a Zen story, which I've been teaching a lot recently, because it's, I think it's really valuable. There's a a certain monk in a certain unspecified time who is walking along um, at the uh, edge of a jungle, minding his business quietly, walking along, and all of a sudden hearing something behind him turns around and sees that there's a tiger coming after him. Have you heard the tiger after the monk story? I don't think so. Okay, so it's a very wonderful story. So he picks up a pace, and the tiger picks up the pace, and he runs more, and the tiger runs more, and finally he comes to the edge of a precipice. In fact, he can't go anymore. It's a cliff, and at the bottom of the cliff, the chasm, and at the bottom is a roaring river over rocks, and he has no possibility of escaping the tiger except by leaping over the cliff, and he sees, fortunately for him, there's a very thick vine hanging over the cliff, so he jumps off and holds onto the vine, okay? He's holding onto the vine, he looks up, tiger roaring down on over the cliff at him, and he looks down, and water rushing along over rocks way down below him, sees his situation, and at that moment, from in a crevice in the rock, comes out a mouse and starts to gnaw on his vine. Mm. <laughs> That's generally what people say at that point <laughs> in the story. Mouse gnawing on the vine. At that point, he looks over here and he sees from another crevice, there's a little um, vine sticking out and it's got a strawberry on it. And the strawberry's ripe. And he picks it and he eats it and he says, that was a really good strawberry. <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> so <laughs> should I ask you a teacher question? Like, what do you think? Sure. Okay. What do you think? Even when uh, there's plenty of data to suggest that you're in a <laughs> dire situation, you can still enjoy a strawberry. That's perfect. And the, and the corollary to that is we are all of us all the time hanging on a vine. Yes. That's really the core. So you might as well enjoy the strawberries. So you might as well enjoy the stories. If I don't use as a title, I want to mind like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, I'll use eat every strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> you could also use use the phrase before, couldn't be better. It couldn't be that, better. That That's not a bad uh, title either. Couldn't be better. Oh, thank you very much. You're right. That, the, it, because that thing, that particular phrase... Uh, I don't want to do any political analogies particularly, but at times when I've been really dismayed at hearing some political utterance in certain situations, I've said to myself, this person couldn't be better. That's, they, they are not to blame. They're not to blame. They couldn't, be, they couldn't be better. If I don't make villains, then I don't feel victimized. It's also a thing you can say about yourself. That's Exactly. And, and I do, not not as a villain thing, you know. I think to, the same thing about this person had parents and they had parents and they had other parents and other circumstances. I do it with myself if I, uh, if I uh, go someplace and I teach very well, for instance, and every story and everything, come, every remark I want to make comes out perfectly and in the right order. I don't get too pumped up about it. I think to myself... Well, that was good, but, you know, by this time, for sure, it should have been. 
and uh, it was a good mo- it was a good morning or a good afternoon. My committee showed up, is what I think. My committee showed up. My committee of Jack and Joseph and Sharon, all the other teachers I've had, all the other teachers and other traditions that I've had. My parents, who were really nice people, my good fortune to have been born into a family, the family that I was at the time I was and had the education I was and the experiences I had. And when I go somewhere and I'm tongue-tied or I leave out the important stories, I don't say it right, afterwards I say to myself, the committee didn't show up. Maybe didn't, the committee did and maybe for whatever thing. I, I certainly prepare for things and I think about them. But sometimes the whole committee doesn't show up the same way as it does on other times. And that can prevent you from going into some sort of spiral of useless self-flagellation? Yeah, and I, yeah, so I don't. You know, I tell myself the truth. That was not the most – that was not the best use of your time, Sylvia, but, hey, it happens. The committee has shown up today, just for the record. <laughs> I'm so glad. Let me ask you one last question before we take some questions from our listeners. You know, I do this thing where I – let people call in and leave a voicemail, and I answer their questions to the best of my ability. Uh, so, but I think now that I have somebody here who's who's got a larger committee and a more experienced committee <laughs> than mine, it'd be fun to to take some questions together. Before I ask that, you your your way through your books and through your teaching is to tell stories. Do you have a favorite story? I do. I do. I'll tell you my favorite current story. I've had. Stories that have been in the favorite place, number one spot for a long time. <laughs> the Woman on the Beach was my first number one story. I told that a lot. This is my this is my current favorite story. The pre-story to the story is, it's part of Buddhist lore to tell about a time that the Buddha was traveling and someone met him on the road and knowing he was a Buddha said to him, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not. Are you a regular person? No, I'm not. He said, what are you then? He said, I'm awake. You have to know that story first. Now, some years ago, I was one of the people at a conference for several days in Santa Barbara. And I went to Santa Barbara and uh, stayed there several days. And on the morning that uh, the conference ended, I was in a... Uh, a van going to the L.A. airport from Santa Barbara. And it was a very early morning, and there were maybe six or seven of us going, and it was not dawn yet. And I asked the driver if I could sit up in the front with him because it's my preferred seat in a van. And so everybody else is in the back, and I'm driving up. I'm sitting up with the driver, and we start out. And it's not only dark, but it's a misty morning. It's really not raining, but it's foggy. And we're riding along. And I realized that the driver is the same driver that had driven me down to Santa Barbara three days earlier. But we're just driving along. And at some point, uh, he says, um, do you suppose your friends would uh, be all right with my pulling off the highway to a roadside restaurant to get some coffee? I'm a little sleepy. So... I say, yeah, no, my my friends will be fine with that. My friends are going to be just fine with that. We feel free. <laughs> and now I'm completely awake. As I turn to face him, and I, I I said, you need me to drive? I could do it. <laughs> anyway, he said, no, no, I'm all right. But I'm, now I'm facing him, sitting up in the van, and I'm determined to make conversation with him to keep him awake. 
So I um, I turned toward him and I said, uh, so Mohammed, I knew him from before. So I said, Mohammed, uh, you're, uh, you're a Muslim, right? I've used up by that time. I had used up on the ride up when I was alone with him. I'd used up all the beginning conversation. I knew his name was Mohammed, and I knew he had a family in India, and I knew he had come three years previously with his cousin. They were going to start an Indian restaurant in Los Angeles, and they did, and it didn't make a go of it. So now they don't have the restaurant, and now they're both driving vans, and he's hoping to save up his money to bring his family from India. So I had used up all of the, the questions so now I'm, okay, so Mohammed, uh, you're a Muslim, right? He said, yeah, I am. I said, do you pray every day? He said, yes, of course. I said, how many times? I know the answer to that question. I said, how many times? Because I want him talking. He says, I said, uh, what do you say when you pray? He said, well, I'm not praying in English. I said, that's all right. I'd like to hear it anyway. So he goes ahead and says some prayer lines. And So I say to him, uh, Mohammed, uh when you pray, do you pray long or short? He said, well, it doesn't matter when you pray, if you pray long or short. You could pray long or something, you pray short. But some people, it doesn't matter if you pray long or short because what matters is if if you pray, if you connect with your heart to what you're praying for. I said, how do you connect with your heart, Muhammad? And he waves his heart, his arm towards the window, which is still you can't see anything. It's all fog out there, and it's just barely getting light. He says, if you just look around you on any day, if you look around, everybody's out there. Nobody, it says if everybody has thrown, been thrown into an ocean and nobody knows how to swim, when you remember that nobody knows how to swim, you pray from your heart. And at that point, I could see a Wendy's coming up on the side. I say, Mohammed, you want to pull off for the Wendy's? He said, no, I'm awake. That's my best card story. Yeah, I mean, we're all here. We didn't ask to be born. We don't know when we're going to die, most of us. And uh, we're just trying to figure out what to do in between those two events. And we often don't get good information <clears throat> about what to do with your emotions. From our parents, from society. From anything. Yes. Or, or how to have opinions. Yeah. Or about having opinions. Mm-hmm. And all the opinions you have that have to get erased. Now, in that second that I said that, I just understood for the first time <laughs> a story that I've told a million times. Let's see if I can tell it very briefly. I was on retreat once, 20, 30 years ago when I was young. And I was very vigorous and gung-ho. And not only was I sitting all day, but I'm walking. But I was getting up early, 2 o'clock in the morning. And thinking, okay, I'll sneak out of bed quietly and I won't wake my roommates and I'll go start sitting now, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'd go in the meditation hall and start sitting, get dressed, tiptoe to the meditation hall. And I'd sit two minutes and I'd be sleepy. And i wake up, i say, okay, I'm going to walk a little bit back and forth and I'd walk a little bit back and forth. i say, okay, I can sit down and I'd sit down. And two minutes later, I'd be sleepy. I had an interview one day with a monk a Sri Lankan monk named Usivali, who was visiting that retreat and just stayed a few days. And I had one interview with him during which we had this exchange. I told him, you know, sometimes I wake up 2, 3 in the morning and I go to the meditation hall. And uh, then I have to fall asleep, get up, fall asleep, get up, fall asleep, get up. 
I said, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should just stay in bed. Maybe I should forget about it. He said, don't forget about it. Go to the hall and walk and sit, walk and sit, even if you have to change every two minutes. He said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And just when I said what I previously said to you, and I said something about the opinions that have been conditioned in, I suddenly hit on Lucibeli's comment, which I knew was important, and I've told the story so many times, in connection with keep your zeal up, but not in condition. Oh, he said, erases all conditioning. And I thought to myself, that brought in my mind the vision I had of blackboards in New York City when I was going to school as a child with an eraser. And I was thinking, I'm erasing conditioning. And I remember having the thought at that time, I better erase fast because I'm probably conditioning <laughs> as fast as I'm erasing. <laughs> this moment, I understood it better. I think we keep understanding the same stuff better and better and better. That's why basic meditation instructions never run out of style. That's it. We don't have any advanced mindfulness. That's it. Pay attention. I, I, when people say to me, how long should I practice every day? I say to myself, I think of mindfulness as of all-day-long practice, that I think of mindfulness meditation as a time set aside, if you have it, to really work on focusing the attention and soothing the mind from the stresses of life, but all day long in the world, to be attentive to what's happening in this moment, how am I responding to it, and what's the action that's most going to soothe my own mind and keep me awake, awake, and what's going to be good for other people because then I'll feel happier about it. And then it's all day long in the elevators, in the subway, wherever you are. Am I in this moment contributing to my own contentment and equanimity and happiness by staying awake and also sharing some of it as I can just by saying have a good day to people <laughs> in the elevator. Shall we take some questions from listeners? Sure. <laughs> Let's put our headphones on. Okay. I see Ryan poised, Ryan, the producer of the show, poised to play us some voicemails. Can you hear? Yes. All right. Ryan, let's do uh, number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Angie. I am calling about loving kindness meditation. Um, but first, uh, some loving kindness for you, uh, your crusade, your evangelism of meditation has been um, such a blessing for me. Um, so thank you so much for doing everything that you do. But my question is, um, I sometimes laugh at myself, and of course, that's judging myself. And of course, I note that during meditation, and it goes on and on. Um, but when I'm practicing a loving kindness meditation, uh, in my mind, I'm, you know, may you be happy, may you be safe, but I'm doing it with my breath. So I'm, you know, in breath, you know, may you be happy, out breath. Maybe safe, out breath. And it's like I'm doing this sort of on this rhythmic progression. And I'm wondering, you know, is that, does that happen to a lot of people? Is it, is it odd? Am I, you know, is there something different I can do to sort of just sort of let it flow more naturally? Or is that the natural way it should or will flow or, you know, um, so hopefully that is is clear enough, and um, 
yeah, I'd love to know what your thoughts on that and your experiences are. Thank you so much. My initial thought is, thank God Sylvia's here because I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, I, I think I can make a try at that answer. First of all, Angie, thank you very much for asking it just in the way that you did, which is very good. Often we give instructions when we teach um, mindfulness, uh, metta meditation, to say phrases of well-wishing on the breath, kind of using the breath as a metronome so that we move from one to the other. To the other, some people use two phrases, some people use four. May I feel happy, may I feel peaceful, may I feel strong, may I live with ease, whatever the four phrases are that a person has chosen, or two, or two phrases. And the point of saying them with the breath is very helpful, especially in uh, uh, some time for set aside for meditation, uh, as I think is implied in your question, where you're using the time to really dedicate the mind to learning uh, in its in in the marrow of its bones, in the tone of its um, neurons, what that actually means. What, may I feel? May I feel happy? May you feel happy? May I feel strong? May you feel strong? whatever the dedications are that you're doing. And what I try very much to do is to actually feel that. I try to say it maybe not so much on the breath or even on the breath and feel, well, give it a moment so it's not so much rote, da 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 but may I feel happy. Ah, happy. I particularly like starting my meta phrases with may I feel safe. May I feel safe. May I feel safe. And I really try to wait to hear the echo of the safe in my body. There's a way that your body, your mind, understands what safe means. You don't have to like conjure up uh, uh, situations in which you feel safe. Say to the body, safe, and it is. May I feel happy? Body knows, mind knows what happy feels like. And it's a different feeling in the body from safe. It's, it's dedicated on safe. It's predicated on safe. But it's a different feeling. And all of those keep you more interested in the mind. And may I feel strong. And that's a different feeling in my body. Sometimes people give the instruction, say one intention and then go to the next and go to the next and go to the next. I'm a little more liberal in my interpretation of how you should say it one after another or on every other breath or how you should say it. Say it in a way that begins to be really meaningful to you. that If I say to myself, may I feel safe, and it feels wonderful, I don't mind saying that a few more times to myself. I'll have plenty of time to go on to the next one. And really, I feel like I am rehearsing those feelings in my neurons so that they'll be more the substrate of how I'll feel in my daily life as I go about. And apart from uh, being in your meditation time, which is probably what you're talking about, in my daily life, as I go around from place to place, I often think in a moment of mind flurry because something isn't <laughs> isn't going exactly the way I planned, I say to myself, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. And I'm so used to saying that in longer situations in my mind that my body and my mind respond immediately, even if it's a two- or three-minute event. So it's not so much whether we're saying the phrases time to our breath as a metronome or not. It's 
do the phrases land? It's do the phrases land, do the phrases land. And it doesn't happen in the very first time. It's really experimenting around to find uh, to find what exactly is going to land in a way that works. Early on, I asked my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, who was my initiator into um, meta practice and is my friend and teacher till now. I said to her, you know, Sharon, when I'm practicing, I uh, fool around a lot. I change, uh, I change the words or I stay 10 times on each word or I do whatever things I could find to do to keep myself really interested in it. I said, am I really tinkering around too much? She said, no, 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 it's it's like tinkering to, to open a lock. She said, we are tinkering around with whatever will open the heart so that it can be there to quiver with connection with the rest of our lives and with ourselves. Let's do one more voicemail. Okay. Hey, Dan, this is Adam calling from Los Angeles. Um, first of all, love your podcast, love your books, uh, love everything you're doing. Um, I have, I've been practicing mindfulness meditation for about two and a half years, and I've recently come up against a certain kind of conflict, which um, has come up in a couple of your recent podcasts, particularly with Ruth King and Dolly Chug. That has to do with uh, what what feels to me like a conflict between um, engagement with the non-attachment in mindfulness meditation, um, cultivating non-attachment, having an objective uh, relationship to my thoughts and emotions, on the one hand, and on the other hand, engaging actively with social justice issues and, and also environmental justice issues. So I've been working a lot more in the last few months trying to bring my biases into awareness and to relate to them differently and, and reveal my blind spots to become a better person, simply put, um, and make the world a better place. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, also with the climate crisis, trying to reconcile that calls for non-attachment, that, I guess, uh, need for non-attachment within mindfulness and the need for a certain kind of attachment to these really important projects, um, this, 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 this kind of activism. So I know you're writing a book about kindness, and thus it, that suggests that you've probably faced this conflict or, I won't say irreconcilability, but, it, but I'm struggling rec- with reconciling those two things because the social justice and climate justice issues cause me a lot of anxiety and stress, and it's hard for me to feel non-attachment from those emotions because they're such important issues for me and for the world, I think. So um, I'm, I'm very curious as to how you have thought about this, this question of reconciling non-attachment with, of mindfulness and uh, the kind of engagement and activism of social justice and, and climate justice. And uh, I, I really uh, look forward to hearing your answer. I hope I do. And, um, you know, it's not. Uh, no hard feelings. But I'll keep listening, I promise. Uh, anyway, hope you're well, and uh, thanks a lot for everything. <laughs> Bye. Uh, no, no hard feelings needed because we're going to answer the question even better. Sylvia is going to answer the question. Well, I, I, I will make a try at it um, because I, I, I know this question, Adam, and I welcome your answering it. And it has always seemed to me very clear that uh, in order to be as much of a social activist as I am, I need to rely on my contemplative practice and really on my mindfulness practice, really on my Dharma practice, 
to keep me from being embittered or running out of um, energy to continue to do what we all need to do to take care of not only our communities, but really the whole planet. Uh, So I I really uh, very much um, really value how you've put it out. I just don't think that it needs to be such a conflict in your mind. I I think it may be um, a... um, the way that we differently interpret what an attachment means, that I I don't need to be assured that what I am advocating for is going to come to pass in order for me to to continue to fervently want to do things in the direction of it happening uh, and to feel at least, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say soothed, but... um, I I feel okay, gratified to feel that I have stepped up and worked as hard as I could for making the world as kind as it could be, and that uh, we'll either succeed or not succeed in the endeavor. But um, if it if we end up not succeeding with the endeavor, I want to spend my time with all the people who were on uh, with me trying to to heal and and to bring peace to the world. I want to be among the consolers. I want to be among the people who believe passionately that peace is possible between us and the, that somehow there could be some way to bring enough illumination to the minds of enough people in the world so that we could stop the, this course of really killing each other and killing the planet. I thought a while ago in the time of the Arab Spring, which did not work out as well as we all hoped would, it would that uh, I, tr- I I uh, I watched uh, the Tahrir Square in, in Cairo, where millions of people were peacefully peacefully gathered to advocate for a different government. And I thought maybe this will be the beginning of the whole world peacefully advocating to stop um, the the kind of politics that don't really support the world. And then it didn't work out that way. I kept thinking, however, they all had uh, cell phones in their hands and they were communicating with each other. And in this era of everyone having a cell phone, just as you're listening to this as a podcast probably, or maybe not, but however you are listening to Dan as podcast, maybe there'll be an ultimate podcast or an ultimate, an ultimate edict, maybe the... Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and the Pope and Oprah will all get together at the same time and make a podcast that says, look around, everybody is just like you. They want to go home tonight and have a family and feed them and get up in the morning not feeling menaced and not fleeing for their lives. Everybody wants the same thing. Everybody, ready, set, go. Let's disarm. Let's invite our neighbors to dinner. Let's make a different world. Maybe we are in an era where we have the technology to tell everybody that message at the same time with people who have enough heft to carry it. I have to believe that the message itself is the right message, and I can't really imagine that I would be happy not advocating for it with all my heart. You think sometimes people get hung up on the difference between non-attachment, which is a neo, a Buddhist a Western Buddhist neologism, you know, made-up word, and detachment. 
I think that, that I think that that's what happens. I care passionately. I'm not unattached. I mean, I care passionately that the planet feed itself and take care of itself. And I don't I, I don't see any problem with caring passionately about that and advocating with passion, but advocating with kindness. And understanding that and you're, I, you're, you can't snap your fingers through your advocacy and make everything you want to happen. happen. That's right. And if I let myself become angry, if I make everybody my enemy, then my mind is clouded and I won't, I won't advocate in a way that's profitable or workable. I need to advocate for peace by making myself a representative of peace. I think that people admire the people like uh, like His Holiness, for instance, who I remember saying uh, to, in answer to a question about where would you, what would you do? He said, someday I'd like to retire as Dalai Lama when I'm old, and they asked him, where, where, would, where do you want to do your retirement? He said, I'd like to go to China. They have some very nice old monasteries in China. And imagine the Dalai Lama, but to not have any place or anything as your enemy is being, I, I, I think, a, a proper representation of his mind. I'd like a mind like that that doesn't need to be angry, and it doesn't need to be assuaged in its discomfort. The people who say, if I give, if I give up my edge, how will I advocate? My father used to say that to me. My father was passionate for social justice, as I am. And he would say to me, uh, when he heard me teach, he'd say, so, you know, if I, uh, how will I fuel my advocacy if I'm not enraged and indignant? I said, you'll do it better, Dad, because <laughs> he won't be enraged and indignant, and you'll do it out of love and care. Uh, and that's the only way that it becomes sustainable anyway. I think that's a great place to end it. Let me just say I feel um, wiser having met you. Oh, thank you very much. I feel happier <laughs> <laughs> having met you. At least 10%. <laughs> no, what's better is I had a really wonderful time. Thank me you too. so much for inviting me. Me too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Big thanks to Sylvia Borstein. She's delightful. Um, that was really fun. Uh, big thanks also to the folks who make this podcast possible, Ryan Kessler here at ABC News, and then a pair of 10% Happier Ringers who also help, uh, Samuel Johns and Grace Livingston. A guy named Mike D is uh, recording this in the, in the radio studio as I record my intros and outros today. Thank you, Mike. Also, big thanks to our podcast insiders and to everybody who listens. We'll be back next week. See you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.